The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we say hello to Marcia Norman. Hi, Marcia. Hi there. Let me just uh, review a couple quick credits. 1983, Pulitzer Prize for Drama for Night Mother, your, as they call it, the seminal work. Many plays written, that's the one you're best noted for, perhaps. That, that is the play. one that everybody everybody says. And everybody yes. remembers that. Uh, 1991, Tony Award and Drama Desk Award for Best Book of a Musical for The Secret Garden. Right. And a Tony nomination in 2006 for your work on The Color Purple as the librettist. That's right. That's so right. let's get going. Color Purple. I Al- Alice it. Waters wrote the book. Well, Alice Waters cooks in California. Alice Walker yeah. <laughs> wrote the book, right. wrote the novel. Right. Um, Alice Walker. Uh, and In fact, Alice and I won the um, Pulitzer the same day uh, in, you know, that 1983 day. There really? was this little thing. I opened up my copy of the New York Times that day, and on the front page, down right corner front page, Norman Walker win Pulitzers for Drama and Fiction. Mm. And um, so it... It's always felt like a part of my life, and I, I love Allison, what she's done, and what that book has meant to the world. Uh, it's, you know, and it, Oprah is one of the many thousands and millions of people that that book has touched and moved and changed, and I, I, was, I was so honored to be asked to work on it. Well, how did that come about in terms of, of your being approached? For, uh, well, for they, um, they, you know... <laughs> I loved it so much. I'd been waving my hand for years about, please let me work on this. I know you're doing a musical of this. Please let me work on this. But because of Night Mother, because of my sort of, you know, they, everyone thinks of me as like the queen of tragedy. Mm-hmm. So they think, well, why would you want to write a musical? But in fact, I grew up at the piano. I grew up, I played my way through college on music scholarship. That, I mean, that's that was really my first love when I finally quit work to write. You know, a, a musical was the first thing that I did. I mean, I mm-hmm. it didn't go anywhere because I was living by myself in Kentucky, and you can't write musicals by yourself. But, you know, so I wrote Getting Out instead, which got me this other sort of reputation as a, you know, serious writer for the straight theater. So um, it took me a while to break into musicals. And, um, and uh, but Color Purple, I thought was, I always thought from the minute I read it, sort of just like Scott Sanders, our producer, did, that um, that, it w- that it had singing in it. It had singing in its heart and its soul, and um, we really needed to, you know, I wanted to help. So I was, um, it, you know, they, they, it took them a while to assemble the team, and finally they, they found that they needed me, and they called. So I was really grateful. You're adapting the work of a living author. Right. It's very present. It's certainly different than, say, when you were adapting Francis Hodges and Burnett. That's right. Um, was there a process, was there communication between you and Alice Walker about how you were going to approach the show, or at what point did she see the work that you'd done? Um, well, the first of all, I came in I came in late in the process. They, the music team... Uh, had been working for uh, four years, five years, so they had a, a, a group of songs already, and which they had all cleared with Alice. They'd been in big communication with her. Um, also, they all live in California, so that where she lives, so that was easy. And um, th- they had already, uh, in fact, when I came in, they'd already assembled a cast and a workshop. Hmm. They just didn't have the book. <laughs> they, they. Uh, 
it was a great day in my life because suddenly I was really needed. You know, I was really like, oh, well, now we need something to say between the songs. Could you come over here and put it in? And I was, yes. And given how much time, if they'd already cast well, it. Well, actually, you know, it was thrilling. It was so, you know, LaShawn's was there. What kind of thrill is this for a writer? You walk into a room, there's LaShawn's, there's Jesse Martin, who was the who played it in the workshop. There were all of these glorious singers. And, and they, as they were learning the music, basically, I wrote a scene a day. You know, I kind of got ahead over the weekend, actually, because I got kind of hired on Friday. So I, I got I got a scene ahead, and and then every day I would go in and I would I would write a scene, and we would try it, and they would. And by the end of the two weeks, I mean, you can do that if you know musicals. They're pieces of machinery. I mean, they, and especially, so I so I know how the machine works, and then I love this book and have known it and loved it well. So it wasn't hard to figure out what the structural problems were, what the problems in the material were. I mean, I already knew that. But that's not the usual method of, of writing a, a no, show. No, but you, I recommend it highly. Well, <laughs> I think it should go it like this. It must have had certain advantages because you knew who you were writing for. You knew who the cast was. You knew what the music Absolutely. was. Absolutely. And I watched their dynamic with each other. I watched I watched them relate to each other. I, I literally wrote it on them. You know, the Celie walks the way she does because I watched her walk. I watched LaShawn's do it, and then I wrote it down. So, you know, the, the dynamics between... Harpo and Sophia, for example, which are such a fabulous, funny, and sexy part of the show, um, that I, I just watched those two actors who had such a thing for each other. From the day one, they were all over each other all in the room, and I thought, that belongs in the show, this sort of joyous sexuality that, it, you know, we need, that needs to come in. So I was constantly getting, you know, information back from the actors uh, about, about what, how to tell the show. Also, you know, I'm white, Right. Mm -hmm. I I feel, uh, uh, well, honored, but also terrified about telling a story that is that comes from the black culture, that comes from this African-American history, that comes from Africa, that's got all of this stuff in it that I don't know in my blood. I mean, I grew up in Kentucky, but not as a black girl. And and I needed them to really talk through me. And that's what we were able to do because. I started that day one that they got there. Basically, I just sort of opened up and received and then wrote. In the annals of Broadway, it's well known that songs are written while the show's in rehearsal, while they're getting ready for Broadway, but not the book. Why, <laughs> why, you know, why, why do you think they waited so long to come up with the actual script for the show? Well, they, you know, obviously teams shift a lot in the uh-huh. course of all Broadway productions. People come on, they find they're not right or they're not a good match, and that, that's what that's what happened here. Clearly, they did. They had other people, a series of other people, like they had a series of directors involved, like, uh-huh. and and so ultimately the winnowing process resulted in my being the one in the chair that says book writer on the day that we went into rehearsal and we didn't that was not our broadway rehearsal that was um rehearsal for our first workshop that was going to take us to atlanta which was our first big production and then we had another you know the the, the what you do now on Broadway is you, or to go to Broadway, you have to go to these various other, kind of like Frodo, you know, you to, mm-hmm. <laughs> before you get to throw in the ring, you have to go to these other very scary places and, um, you know, show what you've got. So you wrote for the workshops in Atlanta, then as it moved to New York, further revisions, further yeah, changes. That's right. That's right. You, you, you know, in Atlanta, we were, um, we really, um, we had that first thrill of seeing that audience. We knew they were with us, but we had the wrong opening. A, um, we had uh, we had this we had an opening where you first it's the funeral of Celie's mom. Well, 
No Broadway audience wants to pay $100 to come and sit down and see a funeral. I mean, at the top of a musical, no. Kind, kind, kind of a downer to start on. <laughs> kind yeah. of, a, you know, you would think that we would have known this, but um, but we felt like we needed to show Seeley's vulnerability, which that did. But we finally ended up with a different idea for Broadway, which is let's show a great big church service where we see that what this community believes, which is the Lord works in mysterious ways, which is is a thing that comes back over and over and over again in the piece and that and that the that the God or Lord or however you want to say that works through us. I mean, we're we're his hands and we're out helping each other. And that's ultimately what that first number says. And then Celie has her first contraction of labor to give birth to the new baby at the end of the song. Right. So it's great. So the song comes down, everybody claps and then we hear a baby cry. And then dad comes in, gets the baby and, you know, so that. That's the story well underway, and at the same time, you've told, um, you know, a lot about where we are, who these people are, what they believe, and what Seeley's up against. A moment ago, you mentioned when you came into the project, you saw where the the problems were and what had to be fixed, and I don't want to let you off the hook. I asked you, ultimately, what Alice Walker thought when she saw what you had done with her story. Yeah. What were the problems, and and what what kind of changes, and how did those goes go over with the originator of the piece? Um, well, first of all, Alice was behind us all the way. She was she, um, you know, the kinds of things that Alice would say to us were were things that had. She wanted to make sure that we were clear whenever we used the word God, for example, that. I mean, for Alice, it's very important that that's that's not this sort of the white Bible person, God in the long beard and the white, you know, that that this is very much a personal idea. This is God in us, God working through us, God, you know, very much that she she talks about that a lot. Uh, She talked about Harpo a lot to me, Um, a lot by a lot. For Alice Walker, that's a sentence. <laughs> she doesn't sit you down and lecture you. She says, you know, bless you, go and do good work, and Harpo is the new man, you know? And I thought, oh, you know, she speaks a sort of Zen-like way so that you think, hmm, Harpo's the new man. Okay, Harpo's not grown up under slavery. Harpo's grown up under a man whose father, you know, he's second generation away out of this. He doesn't have this, he doesn't have this... uh anger that his father has, uh, he has a real chance to be a new man, a new a man that is capable of love, that's capable of being hurt and saying so, a man that's capable of helping anybody that needs him. So I set out really to, one of the, one of the issues in light of that you're asking about, I mean, I, I felt like I had to uh, balance, the issue, balance the story of the men in Color Purple. You know, Color Purple basically is in the novel is and because because when Alice wrote it and what her concerns were, in, you know, it's a story of the women and it's a story of the oppression of the women by men mainly. Um, and I felt that it was really important that we were now that we we're doing the story twenty years later to talk about that the men had also those men were also suffering. They were also suffering in from what had happened to them. Um, and that 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 they needed a chance to uh, find the redemption that Alice gives them in the in the novel, but that isn't wasn't there in the movie. In other words, there was yet there was another adaptation of this material um, in the film. And in the film, the wonderful Danny Glover, remember, he has to sit on the horse out in the field while the great reunion that he's arranged is going on. 
and between the two lost sisters. And that's one of the things I wanted to, like, get, get Danny Glover down off of that horse and into that house so that he could be there for that moment. And which is what that is what Alice wrote. I mean, Alice wrote that he asks Seeley to marry him in the end. You know, he does come around. He he, he finds through his um, his love of this little girl, Henrietta. And this is a part of the book that nobody kind of remembers that Mister does Mister does change over the course of this book. And I wanted to really bring that forward um, and talk about the. I also wanted to talk about how. Um, how hard everybody worked in the story. <laughs> you know, yeah. musicals are rarely about how hard people are working. But I thought that was crucial to say this is a community in which everybody is working really hard all the time so that the fun that they have is really precious and the love they feel is really a joy. And and then, the but that's not the big, big problem. Big problem was how to get Celie at the center of the story in front. Do you know? In in the novel, she's sort of the 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 back she's she's where everything flows to but it's not her perspective you I mean all these other people are so much showier Shogavery, very sexy very funny very loud very and sophia very big and bossy and wonderful and mr very mean and and celie is just a kind of a gray sort of a you know country girl presence plain and not very uh visible even and this is where i felt that um <laughs> I'm real good at writing people that are invisible. I mean, I'm really good at saying, you know what, you'd never, you never even think to look at this person right here, but just listen to this story about her. That's just a thing I'm good at. I mean, we all have as writers our special little, here's what, here's what we're good at, and that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and so for lots of reasons, that was the thing that I needed to do was figure out how to get. Like if if Sophia's going to sing about how she had to fight for her whole life, which she does, which is in this great song, Hell No, um, then Sophia needs to sing that to Seely. You know, Sophia, Sophia doesn't sing it to herself or to the audience or what she needs to say it to Seely in defense of Seely. Like, come on, girl, you got to, you know, if a man raises his hand, hell no, <laughs> you got to get out of here while you're still alive, you know, that kind of thing. Well, you talk about being good at writing invisible characters. You talked a moment ago about redoing the opening to show the people's beliefs, starting with the church service right. and showing their belief in God and, you know, that sort of thing. You yourself were raised in a fundamentalist Christian, white Christian household in the South. Right. Your father was a Methodist minister. No, 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 no. He was, was a, no, he was, was an insurance salesman, but my really? mother, my mother was the religious, she oh, okay. was the, then, the chief, then, the chief of religion. Then my, 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 my internet uh, research was, was wrong. <laughs> oh, but that's great. But he you was, were still, I, but you were still raised in a fundamentalist Christian household. Oh, absolutely. Household. Every with, Wednesday, with every Saturday, Very every strict Sunday. belief couldn't go to the movies and right. that sort of thing. snakes, organs, you name So it. how did that influence your writing on this show, writing the invisible yeah. character, writing the yeah. religious aspects of it, the faith aspects? You know, I, I like Seeley, I was, I was mad at God for a long time just uh -huh. because I had experienced only the sort of punitive view of him. Mean, won't let you go out with boys on Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this sort of kid anger that you feel, this sort of, uh, you're going to go to hell for what your brother does, that, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. And, and yet, because I, and yet, because I was there every Wednesday, every Saturday, every Sunday of my life, um, I, I learned those stories. I heard, I heard those, I, I heard, I heard about, I, I, you know, I learned how to believe, you know, I learned the idea of faith. I learned, and I learned it in a huge way, and I 
And I found that once I got over my anger, sort of after I turned 30 and kind of figured, well, okay, and maybe I don't have to be angry at the church anymore. Um, I thought, well, um, those stories are precious to me now. You know, those stories that Job, that, you know, that Cain and Abel, that Ruth, you know, these these are the stories that, you know, how to, I mean, the Bible is a story about why do good men suffer? Do you know that? That was the topic that I won the high school writing championship with. You know, I mean, that's what I still write about. Why? Why is it that good people are are up against so much, up against such a tough battle? And I think that it's um, it's it's one of the great mysteries that you know, if, if I mean that this is why religion causes so much tr- fighting in the world. It's where we are today. But uh, but for me, the the learning about learning about faith was what ultimately came out of that childhood. You know, I, I mean, and I I was able to use that in color purple in a way that you know I was able to write both Celie's Celie's prayers in the beginning, the earnestness that please God help me take care of my bring back my sister. I mean, all of the her you know her real contact with God, and then her real sense of betrayal and abandonment. You know, and then her finally, you know, when she sings in the final song in Color Purple, she says, look what God has done. And by, you know, and by God, that, you know, that means everybody that's working in his name. Uh, You know, every day when I go around the corner at my street downtown, I see this this place called In God's Name We Deliver, right, which is taking food to people with AIDS and people that can't get out. I think, yeah, yeah, we're the hands. If we could just all see ourselves as the hands, then, you know, that, so in other words, that, that religious faith that was like drummed into me as a kid in a really violent way, because that was their style. Now I feel in my life in a way of like, no, no, I'm supposed to do what I can to make things better out of that kind of sense of faith. Well, you talk about the song, The Color Purple. Why don't we play the song so that the audience can hear a little bit of an example of that? And it's the finale of the show. Do you want to just say a few words about it before we play it? It, it, it is the finale of the show, but it's also it also appears in the show a little bit earlier where um, Celia is in such despair, and she says, you know, God, God, just another man as far as I'm concerned, trifling and low down. And Suge says, Celia, God, not some, you know, gray old man in the sky with a beard like the pictures you've seen of him. You know, God, not a man at all. And that's when that's when she starts to sing this. The title song from The Color Purple, talking with Marsha Norman, librettist on the show. Marsha Norman, also, as I said earlier, writing uh, The Secret Garden, the book for that and lyrics, and a Pulitzer Prize in drama for Night Mother. Mentioned a little bit ago about your rather strict upbringing and it, that you even weren't going to movies and things like that right. when you were very young. Right. So how does someone who grows up uh, in that environment decide to go into the theater? <laughs> well, it's I think it was called running away. <laughs> I think I, I, I ran off with the circus. You know, I I am. Um, I loved the theater from the, from the first time I ever went. I mean, in fact, Mother did take me to see Glass Menagerie when once Louisville had a had a little theater, and um, theater was the place where I really felt at home. Um, it, in a way, you can you know the the theater is not so far away from the church. I mean, it's this playing out of these big rituals. You know, this big what is our need to gather together and sing about what our 
our joy in finding each other, our pain and loss. I mean, that this is what this is the what the church always did, right? And I, so I think that the theater, and now even in teaching, you know, I always say, well, this is you know, let's just this is Cain and Abel. I mean, that's the original Butch and Sundance. Let's go back. Let's go back to all of these stories and see where they come from. And I I only wish that I knew more stories of more religions, actually, I, I think. You know, I think one of the things that we are up against here in the West is that we know, we just know this one religion. We just know this sort of Judeo-Christian thing. We don't know the stories, the traditions that come from other religions. And it makes us really, it makes it really hard for us to understand when we read the newspaper and we think, what, who are these people? You know, and I think that I, it's a thing I wish. I wish I'd had a sort of, I don't know, multiple religious uh, education. Um, at any rate, you asked me how I got to the theater. I, um, I, 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 there was a day, and it is that you can ask this of all writers. They will, they will tell you that there was one show they were sitting in, and for me, it was Royal Hunt of the Sun. And I was sit, which is by Peter Schaffer, Peter Schaffer yeah. uh, who wrote Equus. And and uh, but Royal Hunt of the Sun is one that has like big, like half naked Indian Indian men walking around in it. So it's you can, the conflicts of the conquistadors yeah, and right. the, the right. Incas. That's right. But it's got lots of feathers and guys, and you know how good is this? So um, I sat, but I sat there, and at the time I was in Atlanta, I was in college in Atlanta, and I thought, this is it. This is where I belong in this world. I don't know how to get into this world um, because I'm a philosophy major and a music student and, you know, but this is what makes, this is where I feel at home. And, um, and I still feel that way. I mean, when there, there are days up at Juilliard um, or at NYU now, and I think, man, I'm the first person to hear that sentence that that playwright just wrote, to hear that first Adam Rapp, that first David Lindsay Abair, that first David Albert. You know, these guys that we've trained up there that we've got we've got new kids now. They These things that they write and I think, wow, I I'm I get to be the one that hears them first. It just it knocks me out. It's a it's a real it's it's fabulous to have found the place where I actually belong. We should mention, as an aside, that you teach at Juilliard and at NYU. Yes, I do. I teach with Christopher Durang, which is one of the great blessings of my life. Um, Christopher and I have been at Juilliard. This is our 13th year now teaching the Lila Atchison Wallace Playwriting Fellowship Program. We take four writers a year, but then we keep them as long as we want. Um, They don't have to pay any money to get in, um, and and, and they work... It, you know, they work constantly with the actors that are there and some of them with the dancers and some with the musicians. So it's a it's a, a conservatory like Juilliard is a beautiful place to to train writers. Um, we have a lab every other week where the you know, the actors do the work of the writers. So those actors that are busy trained doing Othello and all that can do modern work as well. But we've lost the thread. Now you're guiding writers. You wanted to be in the theater. <laughs> yes. Where did the first play? How did the first play um, come to fruition? First play, um, we, Christopher and I had this, we just told these stories yesterday at Juilliard. So I wish he were here with me, or maybe you'll invite him on and get his version. We've had Christopher on. Oh, but. great! <laughs> well, because his play, he wrote at eight, you know, and it was two pages long. But my first play, I wrote. Um, I got out of college and had a philosophy degree, and so consequently couldn't do anything. So met uh, fortuitously a man that had. I'd been a high school teacher of mine who was then running a state mental hospital children's unit. And he said, you need a job? And I said, yeah, yes. And so he hired me to come out and work for two years at the state mental hospital. 
And I learned really important things there. And then I left and went on and did other stuff like work for the Arts Commission in, in Kentucky and taught film and stuff. And then I arrived at a day when I thought, you know what? If I'm not careful, I'm going to wind up at the National Endowment. <laughs> I'm going to end up as an administrator, as an arts administrator, giving money away or judging prizes or doing, being a, going to work for Rockefeller. Or, you know, that's – I can see – and I – that's not where I want to be. I want to, I want to write for the theater. So I need to find out if I can do it. And I, and I was, I was really, it was okay with me if the world said no. I got to the place where if the world said no, that was fine. But I just had to know the answer. Can I do this or can I not do this? So I sat down and um, I got a phone call from John Jory who said, um, hey, I'd like to commission a play from you about busing. And Come John's on in and talk to me about this. The artistic director of Actors, Actors Theater, Theater of Louisville, Louisville at the time. Yeah. So I went in and I talked to him about it and it was $5,000 and he was going to, you know, I was going to take a tape recorder and go around and write about it. And I, I said I have to think about it because I, but I knew already, I knew that I didn't want to do that. I, I went back in a week later and I said, you know, I'm really grateful and so appreciative, et cetera, et cetera, but that's not what I want to write about. And he said, well, well, what do you want to write about? It was this life-changing moment for me. Once I could have been ushered out the door, well, thank you, and we'll find somebody else to write our busing play. But he, he actually, then we had a couple of lunches, and he you know, told me the three mistakes you don't have to make as a, if you've, you're a first-time writer, those kinds of things. And uh, then I sat down, and he said, what do you, what do you want to, what's your subject? And I said, Ugh. and he said, well... And this is one of the three things, you know, this picking of the subject is crucial. He said, you go back 10 years in your life to a time when you were really terrified and you write about that. And I knew instantly that I wanted to write about one of the girls that had been at this, that this institution, um, this, um, who was so, so violent that it just terrified um, everybody uh, to be around her. And she turned out to be Arlie. Uh, she turned out to be Arlene in the character that has uh, Arlene. You see Arlene in Getting Out when she's just gotten out of prison, cold, withdrawn, rehabilitated, and well, right? And then also on stage with her at the same time, you see this violent kid that she was. So that was my first play. And that play, you know, I, I John came back from Switzerland. I had finished my, I had finished the play. He knocked on my door. He'd read the play and he said, you've just won the great American play contest. <laughs> so on, on a timeline. How yeah. far out of college? How f- long after you? Ten, st- I was. This was like I was twenty-eight. And this was like well after you had stopped working at the Correctional Institute. This yeah, yeah, years yeah. Later. yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I wrote that. I wrote it then, and um, and, and then at that point, I mean, once you have a big play, and and it was a, it was that moment in the Amer- in American theater when suddenly new plays, new playwrights, women playwrights. I mean, when I was growing up in Kentucky, there were there was Jean Kerr and Lillian Hellman, Mary Chase. Okay, three. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there. I mean, I, I didn't. You know, so I didn't. Uh, so, an actor's <laughs> well, we, we, theater an actor's was an extraordinary platform, platform because of the Humana Festival. That's right, and this was the this was the second year of the Humana Festival. So, um, and Beth had come before. Beth Henley had had a play there before. So it was like women can write plays. Oh my! Well, so I got to be one of them. And we and should mention the name of the show was Getting Out. Getting Out getting was out the of name prison. of the show. Um, and it went immediately to Los Angeles and played there, and then it came into New York and played at the Lortel. Um, and after, you know, and pretty much then, I was that was it. That was like, that was a kind of skyrocket beginning as opposed to, you know, and some people, then I had to sort of learn to be a playwright and learn to live in the world and learn to um, figure out how to feel, you know, worth 
you know, not feel worthless if I didn't have a play running, all those sort of things that writers are up against. Well, they talk about, you know, rules of, of, of playwrights, one of which is write about what you know and this fellow advised you to write about something you knew earlier in your life. Night Mother, how did you write that? Was that something drawn from personal experience in any way? Uh, yeah, I... I uh I ha- it was it was actually from experience during that same time I had um there were f- there were f- there were five there were five people that I knew that had killed themselves mm-hmm. including a guy that uh that I was really close to and and you know you thought this one of those like I should have seen this I sh- I should have there should have been something I can do um and so I I <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't ever planning to write Night Mother. You know, you don't have that as your goal that you're going to sit down and write this play about this woman who kills herself. Um, but, but I got to New York. I moved to New York, and I um, got. I had a job uh, doing book uh, for a musical about the orphan train, <laughs> and I got fired. Hmm. Like, d- practically day two of my life in New York, I got fired from this musical. And um, this is what anybody listening that wants to be a writer, you just have to get used to being fired because it just <laughs> happens. It just everybody gets fired Fact a lot. Um, and and then um, so I had had in front of me a summer of uh, nothing to do. I didn't know anybody. I just moved here. I was I had no work. And um, fortunately, I, you know, I had some money that I had saved, but I but I basically had my days just like stretched out in front of me like this life sentence. And so. I thought, and I was angry, and I was angry at the theater because they, you know, it was just angry. Um, you know, why didn't like all my plays? Why did you like the first two, and then you didn't like the next two? And you just want me to write Getting Out again? I don't want to write that. I mean, I was grumpy, and you know, and I thought, well, I'll write a play. I'll show you. I'll write a play that nobody will ever want to see. <laughs> Ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize. Yes, I know, I know, I know. Well, but I think there's something about. You know, you can't write out of a desire to, like, please the audience. and You have to write out of some sort of something that really is still still bothering you after all those years. Like, was there really anything I could have done? If, you know, if, if my friend had come to me, would I have been able to help if, if, a, if a child? I mean, uh, uh, I wouldn't. I didn't have children when I wrote this play. I do now. I would never be able to write this play now uh, because I can't even consider. I can't even imagine. Oh, please. You know, I don't even want to think about it. But but it but it was a time. You remember that in in that in that world of 1983, people didn't talk about suicide. People didn't. People still don't talk about epilepsy, right? Which is the other thing that's in Nightmother. And there, but Nightmother did did I think make it possible for people to discuss all kinds of things on the stage, um, and in in you know in TV. <laughs> <laughs> drama that um, you know all all kinds of ills can now be talked about openly. So I guess I think that's a good thing. It's interesting you're talking about it. at that point in your life. You were angry, you were frustrated because you had been fired on the second day on the job, <laughs> and now years later you couldn't write it because of your relationship with your own children. Right. It's interesting that 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 burning that desire in you doesn't exist today the way it did then. Is that just a part of natural maturation do people do, do writers change over a period of absolutely, time absolutely absolutely i think work? that it's very hard for people to write plays after a certain point in their lives because i think you get you know that great that anger is this great fuel you know that that it, that causes you to want to you know shake your fist at the sky that kind of thing and i think that by the time you get to be i don't know 40 or so you've either got you've either gotten like bitter or you've gone to work for somebody and it's taking up all of your free time 
um, you know, you don't have that leisure to be mad anymore. And I think that there's something in that, you know, writing takes time. You can't work a full day job and be a writer. You've got to find a way to, you know, get the good time for yourself um, and for your writing work. So, so I think that some combination of maturation and just physical necessity, uh, you know, makes it hard to write plays, I think, after a certain point in your life. Since you emphasized plays, I want to ask you, since you, you mentioned you'd been fired off this musical <laughs> about the, yeah. the orphan train, and right. certainly in reading about you, there are references to shows you were going to write that clearly never came to fruition. Right. How did Secret Garden finally become the musical that came together? Um Secret, Secret Garden's a beautiful story. Uh, Heidi and I, Heidi Land, Heidi Ettinger, um, and I were friends um, from. She did the set for Night for Night Mother up in Boston, so we we had become friends. She had been with me when um, when my friend Susan Kingsley died, and uh, Susan was the person I had written Getting Out for. So Heidi was really a part of my emotional life, and she. Um, we had we both had little children. We had both had just recently had kids, and we had this phone conversation. I said, Heidi, you know, we have to do something together, or we're never going to see each other, because we could just see these like endless days in the park, <laughs> thinking, <laughs> Oh no, I'm just going to be behind the playground swing for the rest of my life. And so um, Heidi said, Well, that she'd had this idea to do the Secret Garden, and I and I I was like the last American who hadn't read it. Well, I I don't know. I read the other. I read the dark kid books as a kid, so um, I hadn't read it. I read it and and said yes instantly, responding to this you know little girl that was somehow in a place that she didn't belong. Right, that's how I always felt as a kid. So I'm ready to go. I'll write that story, and um, so then we did. We asked a couple of composers and found Lucy. Simon pretty fast. You know, Lucy wrote, um, I had done a lyric, um, and Lucy said it, and it was just breathtaking, and uh, then we just went to work, you know, and it it took... I don't mean for it to make it sound fast, because that must have been 87... No, that must have been like 88, and then the show actually opened in, what did you say, 92, 93, we were on Broadway. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we had, we had the director change, we had cast change, we went, we did one production where Heidi thought, um, oh, it isn't important to do flowers, we can do it all in shadows and gray and rock and stone, and, and I made, and I took out all the flowery talk out of the language. Now, you may wonder, (laughs) Howard's looking at me like, what was the matter with you? What were you thinking? Well... You know, you never know what you. But we, all of us, the team, thought we're not going to fall for this flowery, hallmarky stuff. We're going the other way. Uh, I, by I, well, anyway. Um, so we uh, we nearly lost all of our funding and all of our forward motion. At that point, we certainly lost all of our backers uh, by doing dark, cold version. And then we regrouped Heidi uh, to her everlasting credit uh, was able to find more money for us to go back to work, find a new director, get going again. We did another workshop in New York with a um, with the sort of warmer um, m- more what the audience is expecting when they come. And um, and we, you know, then did another workshop. We invited investors and in three performances we raised you know, the $11 million we needed and then we opened on Broadway. The end. 
but in that show, you also ventured into lyric writing. Right, I did. I wrote and, the lyrics. And was that an easy transition from writing, obviously, the naturalism of the dialogue of the plays that we knew to then working in the somewhat stylized form of musical comedy book writing to some degree, and then the actual lyrics. Was, was that I a love process write, for I you? love writing lyrics. I think it's the hardest part. Um, I, I love it because it's the inner voice of the character in a way, and it's what makes it hard when there's, when there, when there's a different book writer from lyricist. You know, when you have a book writer writing the outer life of the character, writing, all right, I'm telling you, I'm, you know, okay, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm never seeing you again, goodbye, goodbye. And then you have this song that says, and I, and I wish I didn't have to take another step, and I wish I could stay right here. In other words, you know, you, with the lyrics, you get to say what the, what's not possible to say in dialogue. And I actually believe that you can go way further in musicals than you can in plays, uh, at least by me, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, it, in terms of talking about what, what people actually feel. Um, because you have this great big long song, you have three minutes to say I love you. You don't have to just say I love you and then wait to see what the other person says. You, you know, you, you get, I love lyric writing, but like I said, it is the single hardest thing to do. You get stuck. There are these songs that you write over and over and over and over again that you, you know, you think, like, why can't we get that one? Some of them you write and they're perfect from the first minute you write them. What? And then, no, it's, it's a, it's a mystery. I don't no, I can't explain it. It's just, it's just, I know it's true though. Well, is it hard because of getting the rhyme? Is it hard because of delivering the message the way you want it? What, what, well, it's why hard. is it hard? It's, it's hard because the, the, the lyrics, lyric has to, a song has to do two things. It has to, it has to uh, keep the story going. Something has to happen in the song, some sort of change, some kind of, uh, cr- some kind of crisis has to be resolved, new material revealed. Um, it has to fit a very specific um, dramaturgical slot. You know, it has to do its work and carry you uh, basically to the next experience in the book. Um, although <laughs> songwriters tend to see it the other way, that the book carries you to the next song. Um, but but it all, it, you know, when you look at a piece getting ready to adapt it, what you're trying to figure out is, okay, which are the pieces, which are the parts that have to be sung because they are the expression of the emotion and which are the pieces that have to be spoken because they have all the info and, you know, they – and that's actually fun. But what's hard is that the the spot is so particular. It's as though you've got a jigsaw puzzle and, you know, it's all perfect except that there are these, like, eight pieces missing. And they they have to fit exactly. You know, they can't fit sort of. They can't mm-hmm. just be, like, a wash. And then, of course, the mechanics, a certain number of notes, the certain rhyme, number of words the notes. and all that syllables that, all that stuff is not hard for me. That that's, is easy That's part. the growing up at the piano part. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but, because, but, I, but I think the getting it to fit perfectly and, um, and deliver it, you know, deliver, uh, get it, the transitions are the really hard part. How to get into the song, how do you go from not singing to singing without that dumb little ding that gives the chord? I mean, how, how do you... You know, and the and the question becomes really how do we move back and forth between our inner world and our outer world? Well, let's take from Secret Garden an example. Certainly one of the high points of Secret Garden is Lily's eyes. Tell us how that worked and what you were achieving, and then we'll give the audience to the opportunity to hear it. Great. Uh, Lily's Eyes is a song that is sung by two brothers. Um one brother Archie, the the elder brother, the 
the the one with the hump on his back, the grim one who's lost the love of his life, but the one who who is the father of the sick sick boy upstairs. You know, this man that's just had so much loss that he is literally stooped over from this loss. And um, and the other person singing is his brother Neville Craven, who is the doctor, who's this rigid, uh, cold, in control man who has always taken care of poor Archie. Um, and run his estate for him and taking care of everything for him. Um, and secretly, as the song reveals, secretly the uh, the the cold Dr. Craven was also in love with this beautiful woman that married poor old Archie. Um, and um, so they a girl comes into the house, Mary Lennox, and um, she's a... She comes, she comes into the house. She's his, his niece, Archie's niece, and she... Um, somehow stirs up in both of them the memories of this woman and and makes a sort of perfectly calm household suddenly filled with all kinds of change. And as we listen to it, were there choices that you made in the lyrics to try to convey certain things, either in the length of phrases, in the kinds of words? Well, you, you'll see that as the song goes forward, they reveal themselves to themselves. I mean, Archie reveals that in him, he's got this one lyric that I, 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 re- I love, even though I wrote it. He says, imagine me, a lover, you know, I mean, which is this, he, she, that Lily was able to see him that way. And that's, that's what she gave him. Um, and then, then Neville Craven says that, that at the end of it, he says alive at last in Lily's eyes. He knows that he's he's just as locked down as his brother. And so when they both see Lily's eyes in this little girl, they they get seen, you know, in a, in a new way. And there's a there's a note in it that that <laughs> that just kills you when you hear it. But you, I guess you're, you'll hear it. Lily's eyes, of course, from the Secret Garden. Lyrics and libretto both by Marsha Norman. You spoke earlier that in that first meeting with John Jory at Actors Theatre of Louisville, he told you the three rules of playwriting. (laughs) And, of course, we heard earlier that you now impart knowledge of playwriting along with Christopher Durang at Juilliard, and you're also teaching at NYU. What are there rules? Should people think about rules? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are. There are. You know, it's the, the thing. There are things. There are things about playwriting that can be taught, and things that can't. The same with haiku, right? I mean, I can tell you what the rules are of writing a haiku, right? But I can't tell you how to write one that will make me cry. That's the difference, right? We can say in a play you cannot have a passive central character. That would be rule one. <laughs> you can say, you know, you can't promise an audience something in the first act. In the first in the first scene, and not give it to them at the end of the play. You have you have to do these things. Audiences come with expectations about plays. You know, we're going to come and we're going to find out what happens when two brothers both love the same woman. We're going to come and find out what happens when a man discovers that his uncle has killed his father. We're going you know we're going to come and see what happens when a woman feels so unhappy in her home that she the only only option she has is to leave. We're going to find out what happens when three sisters want desperately to go to a place where they will finally be free. You know, those those are the stories of the people 
Do you know how the Native Americans talk about the people? The, and and in that, I think the the role of the storytellers, whether uh, whether you're a novelist or whether, but especially in the theater where we gather in the dark, the, we t- we tell the stories of what happens to the people here and how they get how they get through, how they face what comes to them and um, survive or 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 die um, to come. You know, so I think that. We the the three the three rules that I always say are you know you have to you can't have a passive central character you have to give give the audience what you tell them you know if if you get on on an airplane and they tell you we're going to Cleveland you better go to Cleveland <laughs> you better go to Cleveland <laughs> it's it's just like that and um, plays plays can you know people no and then the the third thing is that that this subject has to be something that the that the audience cares about. And that's that's a it, that's a sort of radical idea, but but um, but you know, it's the it's the answer to why do brilliant playwrights write a lot of plays that nobody wants to see? You know, uh, it's because a lot of those plays are things that are only important to that playwright for reasons of family or history or revenge or personal, you know, or whatever. But one of the things that I really encourage people to do is sort of when you have an idea for a play, will you? You just dismiss it <laughs> immediately, and you begin to think, "What other ideas do I have for play?" Right? You begin to like think of lots of ideas for plays, and then you begin, you wait and you see, you test, you you push ideas, you make them, you know, you 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 work on them until you find out if that's really an idea that intrigues you. I mean, we regularly in class, you can you know you can come up with twenty ideas for plays, and you can immediately say, "Which two would you play to pay to go see?" and You'll get them it, just like that. There's something in us c- culturally, co- you know, collectively. Th- there are stories we want to hear. We keep wanting to hear the Cinderella story. You know, we keep wanting to hear, you know, the buddies out up against uh, unbelievable odds. Uh, you know, we you find over and over and over you want to hear these stories of the person given the task they can't possibly perform. These these are the stories of of uh, that we that we love, and it doesn't matter how many times you tell them, you tell them over and over and over and over and over again. But does that kind of limit us to then those same stories over and over again? And then, oh, I don't think it's a limit at then, all. And then we don't get the night mother stories. Oh no, night mother, night mother. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to go back. To, I'm just using it as an example. If we keep yeah. writing Cinderella stories, oh, will, will we no. get future night mother stories? Well, I mean. I could argue to you that <laughs> the night mother is a kind of a Cinderella story of a kind of a girl that has this idea that she, she you know, she she doesn't want to be here, uh-huh. right? Do you know? And Cinder, we don't we don't need to be casual about Cinderella. I mean, all there are these fabulous stories of of uh, you know this Cinderella. You know, color purple is a Cinderella. You know, it's a story of a person with no chance, mm-hmm. right? That's what it is at its heart. It's a story of somebody suppressed, oppressed, disregarded. You know, relegated to the most menial uh, life, you know, and somebody who finds through goodness and and patience um, a path out of there. Right now, in the in the fairy tale, you know, it's to the castle. You know, in Night Mother, it happens to be to the next life. But there are lots of other stories. In Norma Ray, right? It's a it's a story of triumph over you know the the oppressors. Um, so I think that this. That's what I mean by working with stories at their at their primary level of here is somebody that is really up against it, and that's you know that's that's we say Cinderella casually, but it's not casual at all. Well, you're teaching at Juilliard, NYU, still writing for for theater yourself. I yes, hope. Lucy and I have uh, Lucy and I have a new project, uh, Simon, uh, that we are about to uh, get 
um, get uh, going with. And then I'm writing with this glorious composer, Jenny Gearing. Um, and we have a musical caribou that we hope to um, have a, I say, uh, we have a, the, this is a, based on a true story of that girl in England who, you know, put a turban on her head and was taken for a princess and <laughs> still managed to escape with her life. A Cinderella story. It, absolutely <laughs> a Cinderella story. Um, but Lucy and I are writing Heathcliff, which is, of course, a version of Wuthering Heights, but it's about him. Hmm. Um, so so that's what I'm up to. Great. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that. And we thank you, Marsha, for being with us today on Downstage Center. Great. My pleasure. Thanks, Marsha. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www. AmericanTheaterWing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.